to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Casey Watts, the author of Debugging Your Brain, a speaker, coach, and founder of Happy and Effective. Casey joins us today from Washington, D.C. Casey Watts, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Hi, Robbie. Thanks for having me. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? Oh, good question. I can think of a couple. One that I don't see often that I want to call out is there is usually a backlog, like the product backlog, people are working on features, of course. But the thing that I don't see as often is a deliberately prioritized engineering backlog. You can have your own prioritization of, oh, this part of the code base is really hard to work in. So we want to prioritize that over the other part that we're thinking about li- lately because of this library that came out. It's not a high priority, though, like that kind of discussion. So for software to be well-maintained, it helps if you can do it deliberately instead of just doing it instinctually and like cleaning up stuff as you go is great, but maybe not sufficient. You know, and you, you mentioned, like, is that just like a completely separate list entirely, or is that kind of like a, just a different priority list that might be different? That Like the same, there's people listening, and they might be, let's say they're working with something like Jira, and they've got a bunch of tickets in their system. Some of those are items that have been prioritized by the product team, and they've got some items that the engineering team, and I know there's different ways, like you can sort them in different realms. Are you thinking like that's some of those things are the same thing, or just like they have their own list of things that they want to, um, like their own kind of backlog entirely? Yeah, I like having them separate. So like the engineering team has the expertise and context to make the decisions on the engineering, like refactoring and upgrade and, and libraries, all those things. We don't need a product manager in the room to prioritize those, and vice versa. I mean, I, I do think that we want engineering in a room for feature prioritization for, for reasons, but you don't need the whole team. But we do need like the designer, product manager, people with the context to make those decisions on the product features backlog need to be in that room. So I, I like it being a separate list, separately prioritized. It's going toward the same goal of helping us like release software quickly and making it reliable and all those goals. Uh, I like them being separate lists. And how it looks like for me is often a separate prioritization flow in Trello or something I don't actually use Trello lately, but whatever tool you have is fine. Um, and that's separate from Jira. Jira is then, we've agreed to do this, now we're going to do it. I don't like using Jira or whatever the ticketing system is for prioritizing. It's really a different headspace. It's like zoomed out versus zoomed in. Sometimes I just use a Google Doc. You don't need to make the software heavy necessarily, or Google Sheets. Are you primarily focusing like this type of list or prioritization for engineering tasks that are known things like technical debt type issues, or do you see this for just like even like research things or curiosities or actually anything related, just like the engineering team? I I do like the pattern of having room to do things without this kind of structure, because the structure can get in the way if you do it too much. So giving people the free time to explore and research and try things, like the 10% time kind of idea, um, that's still valuable. Even for yourself, if you are about to have like a free day to research and try things. Maybe you want to sit down and prioritize with yourself. What do I want to do? Why do I want to do these things? This will be helpful here. This will be helpful for that that factor. This one's on the internet a lot lately, which makes me curious. And like, think about all the variables that go into why you would decide that for yourself. Or don't do that at all and just do whatever you feel like because it's it's good to have like play time where you're just exploring and researching. That's valuable too. I do them both for myself. 
I have a list of things that I could do, I could prioritize, or I just do what I feel like sometimes. Where do you see that distinction between having that list and knowing like, okay, I, I want to take care of, like if I have some, I'm, I'm air quoting for those listening, uh, downtime to to do some research or do some explore some curiosities or I need, or I do know I need to look into some specific thing. I would do some research, but if I allow myself to wander and play around with something that was completely not on my list, but just something that caught my attention or maybe someone in the, maybe a team member posted something on Slack and there's a link to something like, Oh, that's interesting. And then like two hours later, I'm like, Oh, I've been playing with this. What would you say to someone that says, well, is that not some form of procrastinating, distracting yourself with something? Yeah. I mean, maybe it is, but maybe that's good. Maybe you need some amount of procrastination time. Like humans aren't, we aren't made to be 100% controlled all the time. It's good to give us some downtime, relaxation, free play kind of time. If you can do 100%, I don't know, that's, that's very surprising. And I'm not sure it's good for you if you, you are at the 100% mark there. Do you think teams or people on teams with their managers feel like they have open enough conversations about these things? Oh, it definitely varies. And it, it varies more than just by company, but by, by the team you're on, by your manager or the, your relationship with them and a lot of variables, if you have that freedom or not. Uh, a lot of people I hear sneaking refactoring into a process, like, well, I'm just going to refactor before I deliver the feature and say it's required. And that's like being sneaky about it, which is a, a technique I do. I'm not saying it's bad sneaky, but uh, if you can make it part of the process that's deliberate and everyone's thinking about it and agreeing to it. I've had product managers... Once they understand this kind of situation that, I, uh, by the way, I've been a product manager, designer, engineer, I've done all the roles. But once I've had a product manager understand that the engineering backlog has items that they don't need to know about, they're relieved and they're happy to give some of the, the time back to the engineers to do it. If the engineers are willing to say that's important and they like, pick that up, they have to pick up the mantle of owning that then too. That's true. I know I mentioned it already kind of earlier, but do you use the metaphor technical debt much in your day-to-day work with people? Yeah, it is. It's helpful for people who don't understand programming, especially. They, they latch onto that. They say, oh, sure, we need to do something. But um, it also falls short a lot of the time. So like investing and going faster is the inverted way that I like to say a lot. It's like, oh, do, would you like it if, hey, product manager who cares about shipping features as your main thing, would you like it if the programming development team, the programmers, could do three times as many features in a given month. Would you like that? Because we could do that. But I don't even like that framing necessarily because I think the engineering team should feel empowered to spend a certain amount of time on that regardless of the PM's buy-in. That shouldn't be a negotiation. The engineering department should be able to choose that. Why do you think there's teams that struggle with getting into a situation where they feel like they don't have the uh, autonomy to do that or, or consent from, again, air quoting, like the stakeholders? Yeah. It's a question of like empowerment. Do they feel empowered to take the reins on this prioritization and spend the time on it? And if there's a lot of pressure from the business side, sales, marketing, product, the executives probably too, then it can be hard to push back against all that. And you really need to be on the same page with your teammates and the engineering managers and everybody like unified. But that's at odds with a lot of developers don't want to be involved in the prioritization of things. That's like a part of the job they are choosing not to do by being a programmer. Not everyone, but like maybe at least half the people I've worked with don't really want to, and they don't think of it as their job. And who does the prioritization on the team? The product manager, a lot of people will say. But the engineers can and should prioritize their own things too, just like marketing team prioritizes their initiatives. The product, product doesn't own prioritization, although they do own a segment of it. How can 
an engineer on a team feel empowered? Is that something that they're given or is that something that they can just, because I, I, I struggle a little bit with the idea as someone who has run a, run a company for many years. And I think I've had that question many times in my head to be like, Oh, how can I empower the teams to feel more autonomous or have more ownership? And it's like, but I've also read plenty of literature and blog posts by people that seem smarter than my, than I am. They're like, you don't actually have that capability to empower people. You can, I can't just give you something, right? It's something that it's like this, this magical thing that can kind of happen between there's, there's conditions. I think when that can happen. Right. Right. It's definitely a cultural problem. And so there's like cultural solutions to it. Now I'm doing a callback kind of thing to the RailsConf talk I gave, which was culture smithing, changing the culture. And in that, I gave a model of cultural change. I used the example of uh, gay marriage in the U.S. So like a few states did it 20, 30 years before most of the U.S. got it. And they were like the front runners of this cultural change. And eventually had an inflection point. Uh, one of the keys that's relevant to what we're going through right now is there's different levers you can use to make changes happen. I really like the reset model. The reset model of cultural change. And there's uh, these five levers, rules, education, social pressure, economics, and tools and processes. And we can use any of those levers to make these changes happen, like engineering, prioritizing their own backlog, as the example we have. One of the quick ideas I have here is a process like every two weeks, there's a meeting where we do the prioritization of that engineering backlog. And that's a process. That's something you can build in. And the team just keeps doing it. Another one is like social pressure. Like if the team is slowing down and the PM can pressure the engineering team, what do, what do you all need to do to get faster at this? Because we're slower than we used to be a year ago. Please help. So that's one direction of social pressure. The EM might have social pressure. The peers might. The other team might be performing better, and you want to compare yourself to them. Social pressure is powerful, to, and we can be deliberate about it, too, and like encourage that kind of, if that's something we want to encourage, and in this case, I think we do, we can encourage it. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them we're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com referrals. Thanks. So ahead of some of our some of the topics, I, I do want to like these preface it with like I know you wrote a book. Can you tell us a little bit about debugging your brain? Sure. So my background, I have two backgrounds. One is in psychology. I studied neuroscience at Yale, and I have some papers I'm co-author on neuroscience ones. And then I also worked in tech for a very long time, like doing programming and all all the roles. So I wrote a book, which is kind of like the overlap of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the most common talk therapy the core ideas of that, and a little bit from DBT, Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, which is another really powerful one. And then I've reframed them all in programming metaphors. Is it more of like a software developer type audience you feel like this best resonates with like your book? Yeah, I was, I'm definitely targeting, that's my target audience, is software developers. Also people who work in science and just think very discreetly, they also really like this book. But I've had a lot of non-developers read it too, friends who are in other, other fields completely, and I made the metaphors relatable enough that they got a lot out of it. And they felt like they were learning some tech stuff through, they came from the psychology side even, and they learned some tech things they liked. 
Interesting. That's great. I'll definitely include links to that in the show notes for, for the audience and stuff as well. I've, I've not had a chance to read it yet as a disclaimer, but one of the themes that I was looking forward to speaking with you about is team is team culture. You know, we're touching on a little bit, maybe just for people to kind of help provide some context. How, how do you define culture? I'm assuming it's not your, our company has ping pong tables and waffle parties, right? Yeah, right. Well, I should really have a great definition for this handy. And I will, by the time I write another book, I'm not there yet. <laughs> I'd, I'd say it's like the implicit and explicit social rules that govern the company. That's a big part of it. That's the part that I focus on. I was going to say, and like, can you give me an example for, for those, again, listening here? Like, where do you see some of these implicit and explicit? Like, we do things because of X, Y, and Z type of things as a, as a company, or like the things that actually happen and, you know, someone's not around, like telling someone how to do it a certain way. Yeah, both happen. Um, I think that the easiest and clearest example I can think of is if people have lunch together at this company. I've worked places where people do, and I've worked places where people don't. And places where people don't, when I ask people to have lunch with me, they're like, what are you talking about? I eat at my desk. That that is a social norm, and I'm like violating it by suggesting we do something otherwise. And neither is bad or wrong, but I want to work somewhere where I can have lunch with coworkers, because I don't want to go eat alone at my desk. That's not what I want. Although some people could want it, and I'm not poo-pooing them either. But it's definitely a part of the culture either way. So do you find, I'm just out of curiosity, are you more of someone that prefers to work in a non-remote capacity? Oh, good question. I actually have worked more remote than not. And I felt way more connected on a lot of the remote teams than I have in some of the in-person teams. Because we have great culture, you could say, or we have great like habits and patterns of having one-on-ones with each other and having like events of the right size and shape that we can all talk to each other and I felt really connected to a lot of coworkers at remote companies. Nice. Admittedly, I'm like I'm in an interesting place at the moment, and I'm just going to be open for a moment. Is like even earlier today, I was interviewing someone for a potential potential hire for a role here. I wasn't a software developer; it was a different a different um, role within the company. But they asked me towards the end. One of their questions they had for me at the end was like, "How do you describe the company culture?" And as like the owner of the business, uh, sometimes I've always struggled with this question a little bit because I'm like, well, there's my perspective, but I don't know what it's like to be an employee at this company. And so you're probably best, I can share what I think, but I'd probably be great to hear that from one of our employees when I'm not on the call or whatever, right? But also this other aspect of, I feel like it's hard for me to find like a succinct way to answer this is because like a few years ago, you know, I felt like I could describe it a little bit better because we were a company that was always in the office together. You know, 80, 90% of the time we were working in the same physical space. So we had a lot of other things that we would do, little rituals that were in person. And then we got rid of, you know, the pandemic, got rid of our office leaves, our leaves and stuff. You know, when we're all working from home now, we've hired people that live across different time zones. So I'm like, it's completely different than what it had been for me for like 15, 16 years. And so my perception is like, I don't know what our culture is like anymore because it's not what it used to feel like and like built up in my brain for such a long time. And so I'm always like this. It's like a weird thing for me to kind of wrap my head around. Like, how do I describe this now? Again, I guess my answer could always be like, we'll talk to the employees, especially the people that we've hired remotely, you know, like what their perspective is and stuff. So do you feel like that's uh, is what I'm going through seem uncommon given the last few years? Oh, yeah, it's so common. I mean, uh, I want to call out something I noticed in what you're describing is you've got, there's implicit culture and it's hard to put words to it because we haven't gone through the process to make it explicit yet. You could, you could describe the culture explicitly with some work 
get the employees together with you and whoever, and you can just document and describe the current behavior of the system, and that would be a pretty accurate description of the culture. That's a, an exercise I encourage companies to do collaboratively. So like I, I might say this is like, you can do work to help see yourself clearly, like make the mirror less distorted, and then you, and then you can tell what's going on. You know, I'm curious, like for, for those listening who aren't running a company like I am, but like are individual contributors within a team, what are ways, you know, because you mentioned like there's implicit and explicit ways, but how, how can the individual employee feel like they have some influence in the direction of the team culture? Where do I start for this? <laughs> it's like the, the Rails talk I gave, I said I'd give 20 examples and I came up with 40 and then I actually delivered closer to 30. Rails kind of talk isn't up yet, but that, that has got so many specific examples. Uh, there's also a document which we can link to, like the notes from that talk, which lists out all 40 of those things ICs can do to change the company culture. Okay, though the one that's probably most surprising, that could be a good place to start, is not only can you ask for one-on-ones from your manager if you're not already having regular one-on-ones with them, you can also ask for one-on-ones with your manager's manager, your boss's boss, I call them the grand boss, and places call that a skip level, so if you even just invoke that word, a lot of people will say, oh, yes, of course, the skip level, we can do that. Or like, I'm glad to know that term, and that sounds like it makes sense, and we'll do it now. You can also have it with the peers on your team, especially if you're remote and you don't naturally interact, or people on another team, another function. Any IC can initiate this kind of one-on-one, and that really makes the, like, the network of connections on the team so much stronger and the company stronger. You'll be happier. Then that's a concrete one. Yeah, that's interesting. And, you know... We've talked about that actually at our at our team at one point. I was like kind of curious about it, and then we didn't end up implementing that explicitly. But we we still have like other things set up where we get like kind of like every week we or every two weeks I think right now we get kind of rain, like a bot from Slack randomly assigns us to like chat with one or maybe occasionally two people and like a book a time for us to, to talk about whatever it comes up for a half hour or whatever. And um, so that's been an interesting change for us to kind of like these help facilitate and foster some, I guess, sense of community with people that are. Yeah. I really like that pattern. I've done that at companies too. Uh, it makes the company a lot more interconnected. I think about like, if you've seen the Facebook friend graph, like uh, there's a visual of it, like dots pointing to dots and there's a whole bunch and your one friend group, they're all very interconnected over there in the bubble. If I'm imagining a company like that, uh, which we can actually visualize the tools that are out there for it. D3 is great. Uh, but you can see people being more interconnected the more these one-on-ones happen across the org randomly. Uh, so like random is one way, but also letting encouraging people to choose who they would would do it with is another way. Who do you think you need to talk to? Go ahead, you may. Of course you may. So for the individuals, what what are some ways that you think those in like leadership roles, whether they're engineering managers, um, CEOs at some small tech companies or whatever, uh, what, what can they do to help ensure that team members find a, a healthy balance between um, culture change and they run culture change primarily. You might be surprised to hear, or maybe not, that I haven't seen a company do too much culture change. I haven't seen it. It's possible that the company would stop doing the daily work that's due to the clients and the customers, but I've never seen it come close to that. People generally feel like that is their number one job and anything else is like secret bonus sneaking it in. And so all you can do to, to encourage this kind of cultural work is valuable. I don't think there's much risk of going overboard. If you know any stories or any companies that are examples of going overboard, I'd love to hear it. I think it'd be really interesting. But generally, people are biased toward doing the work. That's why they're hired. They know it. Do you think there's a, ever a sentiment by folks that are joining organizations where 
if there's too much, if they feel like there's culturally feels like there's too much emphasis on the work and not enough on the, what the mission of the organization is. Yeah. Or what the, that's super common. And it's really disheartening. That's uh, companies with that problem end up with a lot of attrition or a lot of absentee employees. They don't care that much about it and they don't really want to be there. So what can we do? This is a question I ask all the time. What can we do to make sure people feel connected to the meaning of the work? I mean, there's a lot. It's a big, big question. <laughs> a big thing for me personally is when I've been allowed to, I, I, I would look, I'm the person I'll power through if I'm just allowed, where you could even encourage people. If I'm allowed to see and talk to users who are using the product and love it or hate it, parts of it, that is so motivating to me. I want to fix that pain that they have. And I want to hear that they love that thing that I shipped two years ago. I'm so glad to see that a human is using it. It's like connecting to that. That's the purpose. How can we connect people to whatever the purpose of the company is so they can see it firsthand? Or even watching a recording or hearing like a summary of user interviews from a user researcher, like here are all the things they said they liked. That's so touching. And then I care so much more about my work if I ever get that connection. Look, it's been interesting, I think, because we used to be able to benefit from having maybe our clients visit us more often in our office and we'd be like walking through something and like that would always be like, oh, we get to bond a little bit more and now we're navigating this world of being remote and our clients are more remote than they used to be. And we, you know, we do zoom and stuff like that. And sometimes they'll do some screen sharing and show us something or uh, walk us through a thing that they're looking to accomplish or something that's not working, but it's, it's sometimes it's different than being able to like sit over there and watch over their shoulder while they just perform some of the tasks that they're already doing that are things that are working and, and be like, Oh wow, that's how you use it. You know, like, and being like, Oh, you know, like every one of time we've ever done that, I feel like it's just like, ooh, I got like someone comes away with like a list of like five to ten things like, oh, here's things we could do to make their life easier that they're not even asking for because they don't they think it might be really big things. And it's like, oh, that that seems really confusing when as I watch you use it. So, yeah. And this this specialty, this skill set has a name, user research, user experience research. It's not gated so that only someone who has studied it is allowed to do it. Anyone can do this kind of user research. And I encourage engineers to take like an intro to UX kind of course online. The one I took 10 years ago, this is old now, like intro to HCI from Stanford University changed the way I do software development completely. Seeing that you can like watch people do something and learn from that and like do little experiments, draw something on paper and get feedback on it. That whole field is just, it was mind blowing. Yeah. I always secretly wish that I had gone down the path of becoming a UX person. Yeah. It's not too late to augment your skills. It is not too late, personally. No, I know that. And I'm like, wow, I was talking about that like 12 years ago. And I'm like, okay, 12 years ago was a long time ago. I, I could have been doing this professionally for probably eight to 10 years at this point now. So anyone listening, if you don't have to keep doing software to coding forever, you can also explore some other little paths there. Yeah, and I like to encourage engineers every month on any team that I'm on, every single month, I want every engineer to have at least the opportunity to see a user, go to an inner user interview, get to talk to a user, something like that to like replenish the the joy that they get at work. And half the engineers don't choose to do it ever. They're just they're happy being told what to do and they, they trust anyone involved and they don't need that. That's fine. But half of them really get a huge boost of that and then they have more ideas for the company. It is just so, so valuable. Can we afford an hour a month from an engineer? Yes, given how impactful it is, absolutely. Probably more. Tell some coworkers they can do it. Tell people you did it and it was great. You can make this cultural change happen gradually. I think back to a couple of years ago when we struggled with like consistently pair programming as a team, and we 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 got some feedback from or something. It was kind of like we got a little bit of feedback 
or at least having conversations with some like junior developers and interns that we had that when I'd find out like, Oh, how often are you pairing with people on the team? And they're like, well, I could see that they were a little reluctant to ask like the senior, like a senior developer or someone else on the team for like, if they had some time to pair with them on something like, Hey, I hit a wall on something. Can we, can you help me debug this or pair? You know, it was like, there was this moment where we had this, like they took a step back and we're like, Oh, it's almost like that the junior developers are needing to ask, asking someone else that seemingly is always seems like they're busy because like they've got plenty on their plate and they know like, Oh, I was part of the standup. And it sounds like they've got four things that they're working on today and like they're, they're trying to hit this deadline. So I might feel a little uncomfortable asking them if they could, Hey, do you have a few minutes or do you have a half hour or an hour to help me figure something out? So what we realized through that is like, oh, we're ha- it's almost like they're needing to ask for permission or ask for time every time they do that. And that's like another barrier. And so we flipped it around. We're like, let's establish an environment where we just pre-schedule time slots for people when they're going to pair and the expectation that's when they're going to, so that they have, they have a place they know they can go to. They don't have to, add, they're not the ones that are going to ask for the time. They're not going to coordinate it. You know, if the, if the, those two people need to reschedule it, they can d- discuss that. Like, when can we reschedule this is a different conversation than do you have time for me? And so that was, I always think back that that was a very, uh, an important, I guess, cultural shift for us was to be like, let's just have the engineering manager be responsible for making sure that's scheduled and it's not a thing that, you know, we don't put that onus on the junior person and put an uh, even more responsibility to a developer, that, a senior developer on the team that who might already feel a little spread thin. And we're trying to make sure that we also have a culture where we are regularly bringing in junior people and regularly bringing in insurance. So we always provide mentorship to people so that they can feel like they can do that and not feel like they're needing to be like a scheduling person is like their strongest skill skill set because that's not what we hired them to be, right? That's brilliant. I love it. I want to call back to the model we said earlier, reset, R-E-S-E-T. You chose, chose here to do the T, tools, processes, option, to make it so that it's a recurring meeting that, of course, it just happens. And that's a really powerful tool. Um, some other companies I've heard of did the economic lever. Like, it's kind of in, indirectly economic. So then some senior developers, their main job is to support the juniors and train them and teach them and make them perform well. And secondary job, how they're being evaluated on, is to get some code done themselves. It's like, if, if you have time, you may do some code. And that's another powerful way to flip that. And those junior engineers on in that situation, I'm sure level up even faster than ones that have some time. It may or may not be a good fit for your company, I'm not saying. But like that, if that's a, a goal you have is to get more pairing and more training for juniors, that's another lever you have available. You know, we talk a lot about burnout and even like at the conference, you know, a couple um, speakers talked about their own experiences with burnout. I guess maybe firstly, do you think it's possible for a company to completely avoid there ever being a scenario where someone gets burnt out? I mean, not for everyone, but structurally you can make it so that the happy path isn't burnout. But most companies, the happy path is getting burnt out or like you hit the, the roof, the ceiling of what you're allowed to progress in at the company. Uh, when I'm coaching engineering managers, a big theme I hear is they wish they could mentor people more, but they're busy doing other stuff like code and that's fine and all, but they want to mentor more, but the structure doesn't support them to mentor more because they're not being evaluated on that and they're not expected to do that. No one checks in on them about how they're mentoring. It's like not an explicit goal that they have. And so for a lot of senior developers, senior like engineering managers, architect track people, we could avoid burnout at least for longer if we help them do that thing they want to do if it's mentoring developers to make a track for that where that's encouraged. 
I don't see that super often in a lot of companies. It's not a very common pattern to make someone so senior, like a trainer. Trainer seems like, I don't know, a low paid job at a lot of places. When I wanted to teach software development through like a boot camp, I did that at some point, but I switched to full-time programming because it paid double. I wasn't just going to be a trainer, but we need those senior people to be training the junior people. That is so valuable. It is totally worth a senior person's salary to be training all the new people to get that good as them. It's true. Uh, and then what about for folks that go through the, you know, they, they go down that track and they end up going into the, down the management track. Do you have, has it been your experience that they've, do you feel like have strong opinions of whether or not like someone like say an engineering manager should still be regularly contributing to the code base for the team? Ooh, good question. I think of this as hats, like roles you could have or not. And one of them is contributing, and one of them is probably people managing the engineers. One of them is mentoring, training engineers on how to program well, which is different than people management, of course. There's a whole lot of hats that an EM could have. And I don't think there's a good one-size-fits-all. Different EMs in the same company, even if you'd wish they would all be the same because it's easier to manage, they're each going to have their different preferences and strengths. And so I think it's much better to have this kind of roles hat model and think about it on a case-to-case basis. That's another like workshop that I do with companies. Is I talk through all the responsibilities, and we group them, and we put them in a spreadsheet, we put numbers to it, and we weight them, and a whole process, which just kind of codifies the thoughts that are going through our heads anyway, and gets them on paper so they're more tangible, so they're explicit. So you mentioned through your through your company you do workshops and coaching. What types of what what types of organizations would best benefit from that? Like, well, who are you helping typically? So the, the sector isn't the biggest concern. People like to ask me that first often. I've helped private sector and government and government consulting and nonprofit that the same problems happen in all of the, all these different companies. Um, I do focus on tech companies because I work in all these tech roles so I can mentor people on, on those things. Uh, there are three different main services. I'm trying on some new language. Let, let, me, let me know how that sounds to you. Uh, one of them is couples counseling for executives. A lot of executive teams, the stakes are high and, and the conflict is often really tense. And so helping them manage that, that's one of my services. I'm not a licensed therapist. I'm not one. I just study it and I apply those techniques in my practice. Another one is helping companies see themselves clearly, like doing uh, interviews of employees and writing a summary report and surveys and things like that so that you can get a handle on how your culture is doing and how you want to grow. And then a third one is helping teams map through complex situations like which future paths could we go down? Which project do we want to prioritize? Which, who, who do we want doing what responsibilities and that kind of thing? And I really, I'm trying this one. I don't know if I like it. I'm like a crystal ball you're looking into and I'm just like organizing your thoughts. You have your own thoughts, everybody in the room. And I just kind of write it on the Google Doc and group them and visualize it all. And in the end, you're like, wow, it's so clear. We should do this. Done. All right, that's my new like um, party pitch. Like those are the three things I'm doing and I need it to be shorter. I'm always working on that. No, no, that's, that's, that's great. The, uh, you know, the couples counseling, I think, do typically, are those typically tech execs then I'm guessing? Cause they're like, yeah, do most typically often. they most often be where both of the execs are. Sometimes it's also team members, like two people on the team are having a conflict and they need like mediation from someone who knows what the roles are and, and the different perspectives involved. So I can help like the engineering manager tech lead, see the PM's perspective and vice versa. Uh, but I, I'm caught in less for that, I think, because there's less investment in those employees and more investment in executives, which I'd like to see change. I think it is totally worthwhile to invest in those people and not just the executive suite. You know, I work in the consulting world where you're working with different companies that have 
usually they don't have their own in, internal engineering teams. They've just kind of, they've worked with contractors or maybe they had one or two internal software developers that went down to like one person. And then after a couple of years of being the only person working on their software project, go, I'm going to go work for a company that I can have coworkers again that do what I do. And so then they're like, company calls us and they're like, all right, well, we don't know that we can hire just one more person. So maybe we'll work with like a company like us. So we, we come into those situations a lot, but there's times where we come in and we realize that there's like where they might have a few people and there's a lot of conflict between them. And, and sometimes I'm like, Oh yeah, great. I can probably come in and help get things moving again. Like the software project is like coming to a, a grinding halt because there's a couple developers and they're like kind of hitting heads a little bit. And I've not been super successful at that, to be honest, because it gets into this whole other level of like psychology where I'm just like, okay, I'm not, I'm not a conflict re- resolver for other people to, as well as I might've thought I had been, but it's interesting to know that you're doing that. Right. And most people I know in this consulting for tech space, that's not why they're going in to help, although that is often the problem that comes up that they end up needing to solve. But there are technical problems that a lot of a lot of my friends who run consulting companies, they would like to focus on the technical problems. If only they could. And then I'm on the opposite side, actually. I'm like, I just want to do the people problems. I'll get you through it. But a lot of companies don't realize that's what they want to buy. I mean, a lot do. I mean, my business is going fine. I'm good. But a lot of companies that I see have this problem don't acknowledge that it's a people relationship problem. They think, oh, well, we just need to have someone change our process and then we'll be good or like something like that, like kind of short-sighted or like more directly correlated to ROI, I think is really what's happening. The relationships doesn't as directly point to the ROI that they're calculating. So a lot of my work as a consultant is like, oh my God, writing proposals and here's the ROI. If you hire me for this, you'll see this outcome and money, money. Not my favorite part of the job, but it's important to get the change to happen. I think some of our clients do know that they, like I had someone call, an owner of a company, I'm like, I've got this problem between two people and I'm just like, can you come in and help? I was like, like one of like one of our one of the people on our team really respects you, and like me specifically, like Robbie, right? And I was like, and they're like, they know who you are, and they like they think that if you came in, like you could help unblock and maybe help persuade one direction or another, and they can remove this like weird deadlock that between two people. And I come in, and I'm like, oh, this is way more complicated than I thought it was going to be. And then I'm like, oh, I'm not here to like align with anyone, and you know, I'm like, I don't want to be a part of your like political thing to help or the person that actually preferred. That, that that was respected me didn't actually want to hear what I had to say when it didn't really work in their kind of in their direction and so that was like a interesting space to go into and so I admit that like I feel like I failed that particular I still think they're dealing with that problem like two years later yeah it's a, it's a hard problem I just thought of another metaphor I'm in metaphor mode today with like to the Chinese finger trap have you ever seen that like if you have two two fingers in it and you pull apart really hard you never get to release, but if you come together, then you do. And so for a lot of conflicts, uh, two people are saying, you don't understand me. And the other person says, you don't understand me. And they're both right. Uh, <laughs> and how do we get one person to try to understand the other and convey that and explicitly communicate validation to the other person? I think you are believing this because of that. Is that right? Like that, that kind of like a meta conversation, even like uh, here's the, the handshake from the server. I received this message. Did I get it right? Was this the full thing? And once someone can go first and like come together, then often the other person's ready to listen once they're listened to. But someone has to go first. Someone has to be listening and more patient and neither feels listened to. And sometimes it can be a deadlock. We'll be back with our interview with Casey in just a moment. Hi, it's me, 
Robbie. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or maybe hiring an airplane to do one of those things where they can write your name or write a review in the sky and taking a photo of that and sending it to me. If you do that, that that would be pretty awesome. And I, um, I don't know how much something like that costs, but it might be cheaper just to go to Apple Podcasts and give us a three, four, five-star review or maybe on Spotify and do the same. And now, let's get back to our interview with Casey Watts. So as teams are exploring changes, and and whether those are happening, the teams are deciding those things, or individually someone's like trying to help change the winds a little bit and do you think people have high expectations that things are going to change quickly or what's what sort of expectations should people have for yeah everyone thinks it'll change quickly or if not that what they're doing is not effective and won't work when really if you want to make a cultural change it's slow and takes persistence if you were going to ask people to have lunch with you every day for three years eventually someone's going to have lunch with you the new people will probably and then the by the time the team turns over 50 percent eventually the majority is now having lunch together. Like that, but that's slow. It's really slow. It's like a um, same-sex marriage graph where it's like really flat for a very long time until an inflection point. But everyone expects it to be fast. And we also, we want feedback that what we're doing is working. And when you're making cultural change, you don't always get that feedback. You might be persuading someone, but they're not, they're not going off saying, this is what I'm thinking about today. This person said this yesterday. Like they're not they're just narrating their full, whatever's in the background of their mind. You don't, you don't know what people are thinking and saying. You don't know how effective you're being. Do you find that you have any good patterns or recommendations on how people can reflect on if those the things that they're trying to change about the culture are changing or if it's not working at all? Like when to, like how to best navigate that? Yeah. I think the, the best advice I have for this is to find allies. And that also makes the change happen more likely and helps keep you sane and in check and making, making sure you're being effective because you get feedback from those people on what you're doing. Uh, so when I recently worked for the government, I had like a, a great ally for the cultural changes I wanted to see, a whole lot of them, but they, they saw a lot of the ones that I wanted to make. And then that person left and I was alone and I was like very frustrated at all the changes I was trying to make alone. And I don't know how effective I'm being. I don't have that like mirror, that friend to be a mirror for me. And then I got another person that was my ally and they saw everything I saw and I was so happy. And then they left and I was sad again and eventually I quit. But like having that one person, she completely changed my experience. And if you had a team, if I had six people like that, then we know we're onto something. One of the things that I've I found that over the, over the years, um, kind of related to that, is like, do you feel like there's like a regular schedule that you can kind of think about? Like, I, I think a cultural thing, I guess. But I'm realizing this is kind of implicit, but I intention and for me, it's explicit that I know that I've tried to be very intentional about some of my language, but like if I want to us to like the team or a few of us to start trying something out, cause I'm not like ever thinking that any decision we make is going to be permanent forever. Like we're going to do it this way forever. It's more like, I'm like, we'll do this until this doesn't make sense anymore is maybe one way to frame it. But another way I was like, I started using the language around like, can we, let's pilot this out for like the next three months and then we'll reassess and like maybe renew this approach or, or at least have a conversation. So that requires us to like reflect on if, is this thing, are we even doing the thing that we said we would and should we keep doing it is maybe a, a worthwhile question that I don't think, I always think it's sometimes interesting that people get frustrated about some, I can't think of anything specific off the top of my mind that not too contentious, but about like government policy, since you mentioned like working government, like sometimes there's 
laws that are passed that are like that need to be renewed, right? And people are like, why isn't this a permanent thing? And it's like, it's probably because it's a lot easier to sell to be like, let's do this for a year or two, renew it if this is making sense until you can make a bigger change and make it a, you know, a permanent, this is just the way we always do things. But sometimes people want that immediate satisfaction, right? <laughs> um, I've been advocating for ranked choice voting in DC where I live. And when I, I learned that Virginia was doing a pilot program for a year and I was like, what? What? Why? You should just do it already. And I was frustrated until I realized that's clever. And actually, we might have even at some point considered that as an option in D.C. to get it through and then prove that it works. We're sure it'll work. And once the test goes through, hopefully we'll get the evidence that reflects that. And so once I realized, I I felt better about that decision once I saw the longer term scope and that we were considering it. Yeah, same thing happens outside of tech companies, too, in the real world. Yeah thing to think about is like it doesn't have to be a forever decision yet you know we maybe want to work towards that but you got to kind of and even if it is a forever decision that's reversible too so the framing is pilot or i say experiment a lot that helps a lot so for you know as a couple of quick last questions i wanted to dig into with with you uh casey is uh, let's say like for those in the audience who are listening to this and maybe they're hopefully doing a little bit of having a little bit of self-reflection or maybe a couple ideas that pop up in their head uh, what would you encourage them to do next? Do you have homework for them? I do literally have homework. We'll include it in the show notes. Um, there's this Google Doc that I have that paired with my talk. There's literally homework at the end, like several questions you can go through if, if that's your style. There's also in that document a list of all 40 of those culture change ideas. So if there's only one thing I want you to do is to go through that list and pick one. Try it. Try to get it to happen. Find one ally. Try it once. Try it again. Try it many times. Tell people that the first time went well. Tell people that the trend is going well. Tell people that this change is sticking around. And then eventually it'll just be the norm. And you've created a social norm intentionally. Congratulations. I dare you. Everyone listening, make one cultural change at work. I'm going to do it myself as well. I, I've not had a chance to look through all 40 of those yet, but I'll see what I, what I can pull from that as well. And thanks for that. Do you, uh, is there a non-software development book, non-technical book, that you find yourself recommending to people you work with on a regular basis? This, do- this doesn't tie in with our themes as cleanly as I want, but it is probably my most frequent recommendation. Storytelling with data, which is, I, I learned so much of it. I think about it all the time. If you're making like a complex graph, which a lot of us in, in software anyway, we're describing complex things. How can you break it down into small pieces and point at one thing at a time highlight this one line that we're talking about right now, red, and everything else is gray in the background, like really help people focus visually. And it applies to how I communicate even beyond just data visualizations too. And it definitely changed the way I give presentations. So every slide is one idea, ideally, when, I, when I'm polished at my best. And it's just a really well-written book. It also tells you when to use which type of graph, which is a question I've always had since high school. Like when, when should you use a pie chart? Rarely, but sometimes it says it has nuance in the book, of course. That's great. Uh, I'm definitely going to have to check that out as well. And I'll include links to that in the show notes for everybody. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts on psychology and software engineering and all these types of things online? I'm pretty active on Twitter and on LinkedIn. And I post a lot of articles that I see on those. Another place is the Greater Than Code podcast, greaterthancode.com. I'm one of the co-hosts, so I'm I'm frequently on that show. We have a large panel of co-hosts. I'm just one of them. Um, another place is Empathy and Tech. Empathyandtech.com has a Discord server and an event series. And I'm at a whole lot of those, and I'm very active on that Discord. 
If you want to like chat with me on, on a Slack-like platform, that Discord is the best. I'm always there. Excellent. I actually just uh, joined the Discord community a couple hours ago, so I was just looking, looking forward to keeping an eye on that. Um, My favorite channel there, by the way, is research. I, I find papers like on, on PubMed or anywhere like that. I post any paper that I find that's relevant to software developers who care about people problems. Tons of research in there if you're a research nerd like me. Nice. Well, thank you so much, Casey, for coming on to talk shop with uh, us on Maintainable. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. I got some insights too. Thanks, Ravi. Thanks, Ravi.